Wonderful hymns. Romans chapter 10 is all about the gospel. And that's what we always need, whether we're happy and rejoicing with those who rejoice or weeping with those who weep. The gospel is always good news. It's always what we need to hear. The whole book of Romans is about the gospel. And today I want to bring a message to you. Our next passage in Romans from Romans 10, 18 to 21. The moral person is without excuse. The moral person is without excuse. I want to start by just reading, starting in verse 17. Now, we looked at 17 last week, but that's the context flowing into Paul's argument. He flows from this important doctrine taught in verse 17. And if we forget this doctrine that we looked at last week, then we're really missing the point of evangelism, really of church planting and maybe even church if we don't get this right. That the gospel comes through hearing. So that's verse 17. I'll start there and read all the way through 21. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, have they never heard? On the contrary, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So this concludes Romans 10. This is the last section here of Paul's argument in Romans 10. And to remind you of where we're at in the book of Romans, particularly 9 through 11, which is a section that Paul is is bringing his argument to answer the question, what about Israel? What about Israel, Paul? Because Paul has been talking about the gospel. He's been teaching and proclaiming the gospel from chapter 3 of Romans all the way through chapter 8. Before that, he was talking about how sinful we are. And how we all need the gospel, Jew and Gentile. And then he brought the gospel and he opened it up and he told us about the benefits of the gospel. And in chapter 8, that wonderful chapter in Romans, we get the benefit told to us, taught to us, that God will never cast us out. That if you're truly in him, you'll never be cast aside. He'll not let you slip out of his hands. You can't lose your salvation. And so then the objection comes up. What about Israel? Because they're your people, God. And most of them do not believe. And so Paul, himself being a Jew that had been converted to Christ, answers this question. And he does that in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And each chapter is a slightly different answer, but they're all connected together. So the first answer in chapter 9 was that God chooses whom he will save. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, God says. And so the answer Paul is giving there is not every Jewish person is saved because God didn't choose every Jewish person to be saved. And he develops that argument. And the modern world doesn't like that. Some Christians don't like that argument. It's right there in chapter 9 of Scripture. Now, chapter 10, we're really starting in 930 through chapter 10. Paul opens up the second answer he gives, which is not every Israelite, not every Jew has believed in the gospel. God hasn't chosen everybody, but that doesn't mean that people aren't responsible. People are responsible to believe when they hear the gospel. And so, yes, 
God's sovereignty is proclaimed in chapter 9. And right after that, man's responsibility. Man is responsible to believe upon Christ when they hear the gospel. It's not just a suggestion. It's not just try Christianity. No, believe upon Jesus Christ and turn from your sin. And Paul has been opening this up, particularly with regards to Israel. Why have they not believed? And so we've been considering that through chapter 10. Lord willing, next week we'll start with chapter 11. And that's about God's faithfulness in actually saving Israel. Before God remakes the world, before he judges the whole world, he is going to save all Israel. Let's now look at our passage this morning and look at Romans chapter 10, the very last paragraph here. And what Paul is doing here is he's giving two reasons that the moral person is without excuse before God. Moral person here is our more modern terminology of what a Jew would have been considered back in that day. There were a lot of religions in the world. The Roman Empire had many gods and Greco-Roman gods that they worshipped, and they would import gods from other religions like Egypt and and bring those in and, and worship the different gods of Egypt. But the thing that separated the Jews is they lived out their moral code that they had gotten from the Old Testament. And they were viewed as a moral people. And as far as morality goes, we want a society that has some morals, that has some beliefs. The problem comes when we rely upon that morality to save us from our own sins. And that would have been the Jew of Paul's day. We've already looked in chapter 10 and all throughout Romans of how they looked to the law and their obedience of the law to save them. It wasn't about a Messiah that would come to them. They knew a Messiah would come, but it wasn't about that Messiah saving them as much as their obedience to the law. It was being a good person that would save them. And so Paul now opens this argument up, or really concludes chapter 10's whole argument by saying that a moral person is without excuse. And there's two reasons he gives for that. First of all, God has made his gospel heard. God has made his gospel heard. Look at verse 18. Here he's going to tell us that the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone out and the world has heard it. So he starts off, but I say, have they never heard? So the question here in its original Greek is a double negative. That doesn't work well in English because a double negative cancels, uh, both negatives cancel each other out, but not that way in other languages. It compounds it. And so the question is very strong in its original. But surely, in no possible way, could it be said that Israel did not hear the word of Christ? The obvious answer to this rhetorical question, of course they have heard it. Of course they have heard it, Paul is saying. That's turning it into the positive. Of course they've heard it. Israel as a group has heard the gospel. That's what's under discussion here. He's not talking necessarily here about the Gentiles. He's talking about Israel as he has been throughout chapter 10. Of course, the salvation of the Gentiles is in the background. He brings that out sometimes to convict the Jews, as we're going to see here. But it's the salvation of Israel that he's talking about. And someone might say to Paul, okay, fine, Paul. People have to hear the gospel to be saved. I can accept that. But Israel didn't believe because they didn't hear it. And Paul says, no, no, they heard it. They heard the gospel. On the contrary, they have heard, he says. 
Again, he, he's using, it's hard to see in English, but he's using this very forceful correction. On the contrary, don't use that as an excuse, he's saying. You can't say they haven't heard. Now, to back this up, he's going to do something very interesting. What we would do here is just say, well, of course they've heard because I've been the one preaching and all my apostle friends have been preaching to the Jews. There you go. You got to trust me. Paul doesn't do that. Often what he does is quote from the Old Testament. We might give that kind of answer, but not Paul. That's not a wrong answer, by the way. He did go out and proclaim the gospel to the Jews. So did all the apostles. That was their mission to the Jew first, then the Greek. Paul starts off with Romans saying that. No, he quotes from the Bible of his day, the Old Testament. And he quotes Psalm 19.4. So what's even more interesting here is the verse that he quotes in Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is often a favorite psalm in teaching theology and teaching about God's revelation. The first six verses, the first half of the psalm, talks about God's general revelation. That all creation is proclaiming that there is a God, that people know there is a God, and they know some things about that God. In fact, Paul opened that up in Romans 1. But here's how Psalm 19 starts. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. The next verse is verse 4. That's what Paul quotes. So it's talking just about creation. General revelation. Something everybody knows. Everybody understands that there is a creation and that God made this world and that they know something about God, that he's powerful. Something about his divinity, Paul says in Romans 1. They know this because of creation. Also, in our own bodies, in our own hearts and minds, we know right from wrong because God revealed it to us. He put it there. How do people know right from wrong? Because God put it there. He put morality there. And Paul says in Romans 1, we've turned away from God even though we knew what was right. We knew we should honor him. We knew we should glorify him. But back to Psalm 19, the first half is about general revelation. The second half of Psalm 19 is about God's special revelation. So there David is opening up the idea that God to his people gives his word. And his word has all these benefits. If we know God's word, if we believe God's word, it restores the soul and so on. And you would think that Paul would choose from that second half because he's talking about the word of Christ. He's talking about the special revelation, the gospel that goes out. And when people believe the gospel of Christ, they're saved. But Paul doesn't choose from that second half. He chooses from the first half, which is about general knowledge. He quotes, Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. So how does this prove that God has made his gospel known, and especially here in context to all the Jews? Well, he's choosing here this proof text. Even though it's challenged the minds of Christians and theologians and commentators for 2,000 years as to why he's done this, the best solution here is to say that he is making an analogy. Paul loves to do this with the Old Testament, and it really confounds people as they're trying to put together the New Testament with the Old Testament. And some people will just say, look, Paul changes the meaning of the Old Testament. He just comes in here and changes the meaning, and he does that all the time, so they're fine with it. 
No, he doesn't do that. We have to read closer. We have to pay attention. We have to study our Bibles, put it together correctly. The best solution is that he's making an analogy. He did this previously in 9, 25, and 26. He, he took a text that spoke about Israel and he applied it to the Gentiles. By analogy, though, he didn't change the original meaning. He said, this is what God said to Israel. And the same idea, the same teaching and theology also applies to the Gentiles. Paul did not say, well, God was really talking about the Gentiles back in the Old Testament when he said that to Israel in Hosea 1. And you just need to know that. No, no. Paul was making an analogy. And he's doing the same thing here in 1018. He's not changing the meaning of Psalm 19.4. What he's doing, choosing a very familiar verse that Jews would know. I mean, this is it. This is the text putting up God's general revelation and the special revelation and comparing the two by the same author there, David, in Psalm 19. It's a text that they would have known. They would have known the Psalms because they're always singing it and they would have memorized it. And this is a wonderful text for theological purposes and study. And so Paul chose that because he wants to show that they understood and they know about how God's revelation works. Their voice here, their voice, he says, as it begins to quote, is creation's voice. There is just all of creation. Their voice goes out into all the earth. And so the word here in Greek for voice means a clear, distinct sound. The idea is God has designed the world so that a clear, distinct sound or voice is going out. It's saying something. It's saying there is a God. Worship him. Not, not literally. We're not listening to the trees and the grass, right? As we see it, as we notice it, it's all pointing one direction is the idea. And so God has revealed that to every single person. And just like God made that general knowledge of himself known to the world, he's now making the special knowledge of salvation through Christ known to the world. So it's an analogy or a comparison. The point here is that God makes himself known. If God can make every single person who's ever existed know that he exists simply from the creation pointing to God, then certainly he will make himself known through the gospel to the whole world. And the Jew would have been able to see that quote as Paul read, as Paul cites it, and understood that, yeah, God is powerful. Of course, he could, he could make the gospel known if he can make everybody understand he exists, even the pagan in the middle of nowhere, in the jungle, in a cave, under the ground, on an island, right? That guy still knows there is a God. And so certainly he can make all the Jews hear the gospel if he decides to reveal himself to them. That's the point of comparison. We don't go up to God to find out about God. We don't travel to heaven to get a word from God about how we can be saved. God has come to us. God manifests himself to us, either a general revelation or special revelation, and if you're saved, it is special revelation. It's both, of course, but you get the special in the Word of God. We don't go up to heaven to get God's message of salvation. He comes to us. Both types of knowledge come from Him. Think about that. Have you ever stopped and thought, if God didn't come to us and tell us about the way to be saved, we would be lost. We would not know how to be saved. God has to come to us. He has to what's called condescend in theological terms, condescend and come to us and provide the way of salvation. And then tell us how it works and tell us to believe. For Paul, 
He says this message that God has sent out to the whole earth, that he exists, is like the message of the gospel that goes out to the whole earth. Now, some people will look here and they'll say, well, there's no way the message had gone out to the whole earth. Because Paul is just preaching around the Roman Empire. He still has to go to Spain. He says at the end of Romans, he's going to go to Spain. Spain hasn't heard the gospel. You know, what we call Great Britain or, or Britannia in the time of the Roman Empire, they haven't heard the gospel. You know, up, up what we call Russia today hasn't heard the gospel. Well, he's not saying that every person has heard. He's talking specifically about the Jews. And in the context here, the Jews lived in the Roman Empire or on the fringe on the eastern side. They would be on the fringe of the Roman Empire if, if there were still some in Babylon at the time, which there was. And so he's saying all the Jews have heard the gospel. They have access to the gospel. They're without excuse. They have heard it. The problem is not that they haven't heard it. They have heard it. The problem is they didn't believe what they heard. They're without excuse. Because believing is a willful thing that you do. But if you haven't heard the gospel, God's not going to judge somebody for rejecting the gospel if they've never heard it. All people are judged for their sin. And one of the sins that people commit is when they hear the gospel, they reject it. But if somebody never heard the gospel, God's not going to count that sin against them for rejecting it because they never heard it to reject it. They're going to be judged for their own sin, which we all know all people are sinners. That's why people go to hell who've never heard the gospel because they're sinners. But he's saying here, those who have heard and didn't believe, they're without excuse. We love excuses today, don't we? We recently heard a sermon from a missionary on excuses and calling ourselves victims when we're not victims. We love excuses. And we sometimes make excuses for other people. And we say, well, they didn't believe because of this. And they, they had a rough upbringing. So it's hard for them to accept the God as Father and, and so on. And we come up with these excuses. And you know, Paul says, there's no excuse. If you've heard the gospel and you didn't believe, that's on you. That's not on God. It's not God's fault. He made it known. He made it heard. Jim Boyce, love his application on this. He says, let me say then, that if this was true in Paul's day, when the gospel was just beginning to be proclaimed throughout the world, it is certainly far more true today. Sometimes we emphasize roughly one and a half billion people who have not even heard of Christ. It is right that we do, but how about the three and a half billion who have? How about you? Or to put it in today's numbers, because that was a few decades ago, there's about two billion people who've not heard the gospel. They don't have access to the gospel. They're the ones we're sending missionaries to around the world. But what about the six billion people who have heard it and have access to it? Why don't they believe? Why have they rejected? That's on them, not on God. The moral person who thinks they're good, who thinks they're living a good life, they've heard about the Bible, they've heard about Jesus Christ, but they haven't actually believed in Him as Savior. They're without excuse. They can't blame God because He has taken it out to six billion people in the world. The second reason, and this one is more developed here by Paul, the second reason is that God has made his gospel clear. You have to hear the gospel to be saved. And we could, we could translate that into read it online or read it on from the preaching of the word uh, as you read the, the text of scripture. But you must know something about Jesus. You must know that you're a sinner. We all know we're sinners, but we have to admit that. We have to confess that. You must know that Jesus Christ was sent as the only way of salvation, his, his death on the cross for our sins, which that transaction brought about forgiveness of those sins if we believe in him, and his coming back to life on the third day. Those are the things we must know. That's the basics of the gospel. Somebody's got to tell you that, or you've got to read that. 
You've got to come to know that in some way, right? If somebody's blind, you know, we can say they've got to feel that in the braille and so on. But they have to take in that information. They've got to hear it. But they also have to understand it. And Paul now opens this up and says that God has made them understand it. It has been clear they understood it. The gospel of Christ has not only gone out and been heard, but God has made sure the people have an understanding of what the gospel is. Look at verse 19. But I say, did Israel not know? Did Israel not know? Again, very strong in the original here. Some might say, okay, Paul, so they've heard the gospel, but they didn't really understand it. That's their excuse. You can't blame them. The Jewish people heard it, but they didn't understand it. They didn't realize. They didn't comprehend. It can't be their fault. It's God's fault because they couldn't understand it. It wasn't clear. It was too complex. There was too many things to do, right? I often thought when I was younger, before I was saved, I thought, well, the way to be a Christian is to do all this right stuff. Be like those people who go to church, right? They're perfect. We've got to be like all the perfect Christians. We've got to dress like them. We've got to act like them. We've got to talk like them. That's how you become a Christian. And that's hard because you've got to know all the rules to follow. You've got to be a good person. Well, this is the excuse that the Jew might bring out. Or maybe a well-meaning Christian who just wants to make an excuse for the Jews for not believing. But again, the question that Paul asks here is in the double negative. Which means the answer in this rhetorical question is, of course they have heard. It's not surely possible, certainly not possible, that they haven't heard. They've heard it, and it's not possible that they haven't understood it. They have understood it. Of course they've understood it. Who better to start with as he brings now his proof. He's going to bring out proof from the Old Testament. That's what Paul does. Romans 10 isn't a challenge to understand overall. It's about man's responsibility. It's a challenge, though, at times because he quotes so many Old Testament verses here. You've got to dig into the context of the Old Testament and now see how Paul's using it here in his argument. But I love how he brings out the proof from the Bible. Paul was an apostle. He spent time training with the Lord. He didn't say, well, you know, Jesus told me when I was in the desert for three years and you just got to trust me. He says, you know the word of God? Here it is. He went line by line, precept by precept. He taught from the Bible. So he's going to bring out some witnesses to prove his point. To prove that God has made his gospel clear. They're going to be from Moses and from Isaiah. It's actually three verses, but two witnesses here, Moses and Isaiah. And who better to be that first witness than Moses himself, the most respected teacher to the Jews. You got to understand, Paul is excellent at making his case from Scripture and knowing the people he's talking to. They valued Moses. There was a seat in the synagogue called the seat of Moses. That's where the teacher sat. That's where they explained the law. That's where they would explain it. They sat down when they taught. Everybody sat down. The teacher sat down. And they would explain. Even the early church did it like this. They would explain. The teacher would as he seated there. And if it's the Jew in the synagogue. The seat of Moses. Well you have Moses here. From Deuteronomy 32. 21. Paul brings this forward. For Moses. First Moses says. I will make you jealous. By that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding. Will I anger you. So again. Remember the argument. 
They have understood. Where is that here in the verse, Paul? We've got to dig. We've got to understand what's going on. We see the word without understanding. How does this fit Paul's argument? Well, Moses is saying in Deuteronomy 32 that in their future, Israel's going to turn from the Lord. They're going to turn from Yahweh. They're going to worship false gods. They're going to worship the gods of Canaan. We see that played out in the Old Testament. And as a result of that, part of the judgment is that God is going to make them jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, will I anger you? So God will make them jealous. God will provoke them to anger with a nation, with a people that's not his people. First, he does this through bringing judgment upon them from other nations. And we see this in the book of Judges where the the nations around Israel start attacking and putting them under oppression. Eventually, Assyria comes. The whole empire of Assyria takes out the uh, northern ten tribes. And then Babylon comes and takes out the southern kingdom, but the southern uh, two tribes. But eventually, what this is pointing to, if we look all the way down the prophetic line, is that God is going to save a people that's not Israel. Those who are not Israel are called Gentiles or just the nations. He is going to save people that are not Jewish. And that is going to have a secondary effect now. Or we could even say it's the ultimate reason God does this is to provoke Israel to make them jealous. That's a theme that's at work even in the Old Testament. And at the end of that prophetic timeline, we see that now with the gospel going out, don't we? That it's supposed to point the Jews back to Christ. Come on, Jews. If the Gentiles who didn't even know God believe in the Messiah, certainly you can. It's not that hard to understand these ideas. It's not that complex. If the Gentiles who knew nothing of the Bible can believe, can be saved. It must be easy to understand. And he says here, a nation without understanding. That's the same word here, understanding. In fact, if we go back in Romans 1, Paul's already used this word. He's used this word, asunetos in Greek, but it's in 121 as foolish. He's speaking here about the Gentiles. Remember, he starts in Romans 1.18, and he says the reason people need the gospel of the righteousness of God is because all the Gentiles, first of all, are unrighteous. Then later he'll talk about the Jews being unrighteous. But in 121, for even though they knew God, talking about pagans, talking about Gentiles, they did not glorify him as God. So they knew that God existed from creation. And they knew some things about his attributes. They did not glorify him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their thoughts. And they're foolish. That's without understanding. Same Greek word here. They became foolish. Their heart was darkened. They did not understand God. The Gentiles did not understand anything about God. They did not have the Old Testament. All they knew there was a God. They knew some things about his attributes, that he was divine and so on. They did not know what we now can look back and read in the Old Testament. Israel was the only nation who had the Old Testament. Israel was the only one that God revealed himself to in a special way. They were without understanding. Look at verse 31 of Romans 1. 131. He's describing all of these sins that the Gentiles live out. And he says, they're without understanding. There it is. They had no understanding of God. They weren't seeking the true God. They weren't wandering around stumbling. They knew he existed. They had no idea 
how to come to him and be saved. They were without understanding. This is something that the Jews should have been able to reason through in Scripture here. Because Moses is talking about it in Deuteronomy 32. And Paul's saying, look, Jews of Paul's day and today, how do you not know this? They understood. The Jews understood because even the Gentiles understood. They were without understanding. They get saved. They have the understanding of God. If that can happen, certainly the Jews who've heard it have also understood it. Sometimes in modern Christianity, in the Western world, in America, in Texas, and the South, we think when somebody hears the gospel and understands it, that means they're saved. Paul's not making that argument here. He's not saying they understood it and believed. He's saying they understood it and they still didn't believe. That's his whole argument here. Just knowing some facts about Christianity is not salvation. The Jews memorized the Bible. Some of them, who knows, they could have memorized the whole Old Testament. There are people who memorize the whole Bible, or there used to be. And yet, knowing all these facts, understanding what they mean, isn't true saving faith. You must put trust, your trust, in Christ. So the problem here is not with their mind. It's not like the Jews just couldn't comprehend it. It's a very clear message. Faith alone in Christ alone. Not your own works. That was their problem. So their problem's not a mental, intellectual, understanding problem. Their problem is one of sin. Sin in the heart. Sin in the heart makes them not want to believe. They choose not to believe, in other words. It's not an accident. It's not like a two-year-old who can't really understand what you're saying sometimes. That's a lack of understanding. Their mind hasn't developed and their experience in life hasn't developed yet to understand. But these people understood. People today who hear the gospel understand it. That's not the problem. They just don't believe. So God is saying that he ordained that this would come about, that they would be saved, the Gentiles would be saved, and Israel would see that and be jealous. And we're going to see that come back up in chapter 11 as well. Now Paul brings out his second witness. The second witness is from Isaiah. And he says, Isaiah is very bold which just means he's very forthright. He's very clear, very passionate. Again, arguing that they do understand because Isaiah said this. He made it clear. He preached it passionately. Here's what he said. I was found. This is speaking of of God here. I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Isaiah 65.1 is what he's quoting here. And those who did not seek me, these are Gentiles. These are Gentiles here. And God is saying, I will reveal myself. I will manifest myself to non-Jews. He will come to them. He will reveal himself through the gospel. And he will save them. These are not his people. They are not Jewish. They were not looking for him. They did not have the Old Testament. They didn't have the burning bush. They didn't have the law of Moses. They didn't have the prophets. But Isaiah says, in the future days, Israel will be judged. And part of that will be that the nations will be saved before the end times when all Israel is brought in. That's where we're headed in Romans 11. Israel here is being judged. Isaiah is talking about that throughout this. But he weaves in, as God often does, restoration. You notice that in the prophets? You you read Isaiah, you read Jeremiah. Ezekiel, 
Judgment, 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 restoration, restoration, restoration. Judgment, judgment, judgment. It's just a cycle, right? And not a cycle like judges where they continue to go down. But it's God saying all this bad stuff's coming, but there's hope. And he always puts hope in between these passages of judgment. Well, in Isaiah 65.1, he says, I'm going to reveal myself. And again, this points back to the jealousy idea. They did not ask for God. They did not seek out God. But he is going to save the Gentiles, the people for his own possession. Not every Gentile, obviously. But he is going to save Gentiles. Isaiah talks about this previously. I love this verse. Isaiah 52, 15. Thus he, God, Yahweh, will sprinkle many nations. The sprinkling there points back to the sacrifice. The, the once a year atonement, the day of atonement, the high priest would sacrifice an animal and then blood would be sprinkled in the Holy of Holies on top of the tabernacle, on the, on the mercy seat, on top of the ark, sorry, the ark of the covenant. Once a year for the forgiveness of sins for the nation. And there's one coming, a suffering servant who's going to be God and sprinkle many nations. Now that would have been strange to the Jew. The Jews get the sprinkling on the sacrifice on the day of atonement. Now many nations are going to get it? And kings will shut their mouths on account of him? Who's more powerful than the kings of the world? For what had not been told them, they will see. They were never told about this coming Messiah. And they're going to be exposed. God's going to reveal himself to them through the gospel. And look at this last part here, Isaiah 52, 15. And what they had not heard, they will understand. doesn't mean that they won't hear the gospel. It means throughout the ages, the Gentiles did not hear about this God. And then one day, the gospel comes. They hear about this God, about his son, about the Savior, and they understand. And they believe is the idea because they've been sprinkled. They've been saved through the sprinkling of the sacrifice of Christ. Again, Paul goes deep on his argument here. He doesn't just say, oh yeah, they understand. Let me cite some verses to show you in the Old Testament. Israel understood. No, he goes a second layer and he says, not only did Israel understand, but the Gentiles understood, which is even a stronger argument. Because the Jew would have said, oh, Gentiles don't understand anything about God. They don't understand the gospel. The Jews are the ones who understand God. Oh, we didn't understand the gospel. No, Paul says you did, because even the Gentiles understood it. Now, the best best illustration here is in Luke 14. If you go back to Luke 14, Jesus tells a parable. And it is the parable here of the dinner. And he is teaching the Jews already on this subject here. And Luke 14, starting in verse 15... Luke 14, 15, he's been talking about not taking the best seats at, the, at a banquet. And in verse 15, somebody says, But when one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So that's his modern terminology. It's like saying, everyone's going to heaven. You know, blessed is everyone. They're all going to heaven. And Jesus says here the parable. A man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said, I bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. 
I ask you, consider me excused. And another one said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. I ask you, consider me excused. And another said, I've married a wife. And for that reason, I cannot come. And when the slave came back, he reported these things to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. The slave said, Master, what you have commanded has been done. And still there's more room. And the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the fences and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. So there's three groups in the parable there. The first group is the self-deluded. They have a false belief about their salvation. The idea is they're too busy. You know, they've got everything arranged. Everything is nice and orderly. They've got things to handle. I mean, we've got our salvation set aside here. We don't need to worry about this guy inviting us to dinner, which is an illustration for the kingdom of God. We don't need to worry about that. It's already taken care of. We've got more important things to deal with. We're just going to go deal with business and family. And I mean, come on. Everybody knows you've got to provide for your family. You've got to take care of your wife, newlyweds, and all that. We don't have time for this kingdom of God stuff. That's the self-deluded. They're trusting in themselves. Second group here is the outcasts. The poor, the crippled, the lame, the outcasts of society, probably Jews in this case, that were thrown off by society, yet these people are so desperate that they're not trusting in themselves. They've been told that they're already under God's judgment. That's why they're crippled. That's why they're lame, they've been told. And so, man, they're ready to come to a feast. They don't get invited to a feast like this all the time. They're going to come, and they do, but there's still room for this third group, this third group. And this is the unworthy, the people who don't deserve to be there. They're out along the byways and the highways. They're the thieves. They're the robbers. They're the Gentiles. The group here is representing Gentiles. That Jesus is not going to take in the self-righteous Jew who thinks they don't have time for this. He's going to take in the outcasts, the thieves, the robbers, the people who are running from God. Or Ephesians 2 says, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And the guy, the the master says, go out, find these people. Go out outside the city, go into the highways, beat the bushes, go in every direction, invite the ones who don't even know the master's house. They don't know who this guy is. And suddenly they hear about a master who has this great house and he's got a big banquet going on. They've never heard of the banquet, but they're willing to go. These did not get the first invite, but they got the next invite, didn't they? The Jews hear the gospel first, and then to the Greek. And more Gentiles, more Greeks, that's just a word for Gentiles, believe than the Jews. It was that way in Paul's day. It's that way today. And Paul says, it's not because they didn't hear, and it's not because they didn't understand a clear gospel presentation. They did. They did. The Gentiles were not seeking God, yet God invited them into the kingdom of his beloved son. They did not come to God, but he manifested himself to them. God took the message to the Gentiles. That was his plan all along. And Isaiah 65.1 proves that. Well, now Paul brings up his last proof text here. Again, from Isaiah, the very next verse, Isaiah 65.2. But as for Israel. So there's a contrast. In verse 1, 
He's talking to Israel in Isaiah 65, but he tells Israel about these Gentiles. They're not God's people. They weren't looking for him. He's going to save them. And in the very next verse, but as for Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. God has come to unbelieving Israel. He has been the one to move towards them. They rejected him. They were like Jonah running from him. And God comes to them. God brings the Savior to them. Christ was born of a virgin in Israel. She was a Jew. The first people to believe were Jewish. The early church was mostly Jewish in its first few decades. But yet most rejected Christ. Most rejected Christ. The crowd that said crucify him was larger than the number of disciples in that day. And Paul says, look, they have understood. They have understood because all day long, the idea is God is continuing to show his love and mercy by proclaiming the gospel. All day long, the gospel goes out and they still reject it. He stretches out his hands. This is a picture just of God's love and mercy. He's reaching out like this. Not the idea of the modern gospel that goes out. That God's on his knees and he's kind of crying because you won't take him as your, your mate or whatever. No, no. This is the sovereign, all-powerful God. Who, if you really understood your sin and you really understood his holiness, you would expect him to be sort of like this or not even looking towards you. And here he is. Just like this. Come to me. Just like Jesus said. Come to me. All you who are weary. And burdened. That's what God is doing with Israel. He's reaching out to man. Not man to God. The Bible doesn't say man went up to find God. No, God comes down to save man. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to seek. Nobody was seeking him. He came to seek and to save the lost. But what was their response? They were disobedient and obstinate. Disobedient means they have not obeyed. We saw that back in verse 16 last week. They did not all heed the good news. They heard it. They didn't obey it. That's another way of saying they didn't believe. They didn't repent. They heard the command, come to me. Jesus didn't say, if you feel like it and you're having a good day, come to me. Those who are heavy, those who are weary. No, he said, come. It's not in a and a rude voice, but it is an imperative. It is a call to come because it's the only way of salvation. And they were disobedient. They were called to believe, and yet they did not. They rejected the only hope of salvation. This is why Jesus, as he's coming over the hill into Jerusalem on the triumphal entry, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings And you did not want it. The leaders rejected Jesus. The crowds, for the most part, rejected Jesus. Even though there was a crowd that were his disciples and followed him. They laid down the the blankets and the palm fronds when he came in. But he says, here I was coming with open arms. And you did not want it. That's disobedience. And then obstinate. Now in English, obstinate means to stubbornly refuse to change one's opinion. Just being stubborn. You're obstinate. You're, you're not going to budge. And that, that's probably the best we can do here for this word in Greek. But there's more. There's more of a nuance here. The nuance is that the word means not only did they act stubborn and not believe, 
But then they spoke against it. They spoke contrary to it. They rejected it and then said why and spoke against it. They spoke out against the truth. They said it was heresy. They said it was garbage. Today, people might say, I don't need that stuff. Don't come to me with your religion. You think you're holier than thou? Don't come preaching to me. I've already heard the gospel. That's the way they responded. And then they went and told everybody not to listen to you next time you come around. And you saw that in Acts, didn't we? Where Paul stoned by who? The Jews. They come and they stir up trouble in the city. They stir up trouble over and over for Paul and Barnabas. And they even sometimes follow them to the next one and stir up trouble. So Paul's saying, look, all the qualifications have been met for trusting in Christ for salvation. They have heard, which is required, and they understood. These moral people, they're without excuse. Here's some application for today. The more invested a person is in their religious beliefs, their false religious beliefs, the harder it is for them to believe the gospel. Think about that when you're talking with your loved ones. Know that going in, that doesn't mean you don't evangelize them. But realize, and warn people even, that the further they go down one path, the harder it is from man's point of view. We know, we know about God's sovereignty. We studied that in, in chapter 9 of Romans. This is speaking of man's responsibility. The more invested they are in something, the harder it is to divest from that and turn to Christ. The harder it is to turn from their works righteousness and turn to Christ. If you've evangelized Roman Catholics, if you've evangelized people in different belief systems, you get an idea of what I'm speaking about. They don't come to the banquet of Christ. There's just other things to do. They've already got that taken care of. You know, they've done all these things. They've got other things to do in this life than come to Christ. Christ alone through faith alone. And so they don't respond with simply faith. That's too simple. It's got to be harder than that. It has to be all these rules I've been following my whole life. If you're here today and this describes you, think about that. The the more invested you are in your self-righteousness, in your works righteousness, the harder it will be to divest of that and turn because you're trusting in yourself. That's why it has to be a work of God for anybody to be saved. But the further you go down that path, the more challenging it is from the human perspective. Because you're likely to say, I've got this salvation thing all squared away. I'm a good person. I'm a moral person. God's going to weigh all my good and all my little bit of bad, and I'm going to get into heaven someday. And I believe in God, and I believe in the angels, and I believe, and I believe in these things and those things. No, it's faith alone in Christ alone. That's great. You believe in God. The demons believe in God. That's great. You believe all the doctrines of Scripture. Satan believes all the doctrines of Scripture. That's not the problem. The problem is submitting to them, committing to them, trusting that this Savior that's described here in Scripture is the one who will carry you through and you will not stand in the fires of hell forever and ever burning for your sin. The failure of the Jews here was that they didn't believe, not that they didn't hear, Not that they didn't understand. They did not believe. God made sure they heard. He made sure that it was clear to them. Yet they did not believe. And so I ask a crowd this size, what about you? 
You've heard the gospel. You've heard it if you've been here a few weeks. You heard it today. It's been clear. Faith alone in Christ alone. The word of Christ has gone forth. That was mentioned in verse 17 last week, and I read it today. The word of Christ has gone forth. Have you heard it? Paul would say, yes, you have. Have you understood it? Yes, you have. If you're of a certain age, you certainly understood it. But have you believed? Have you trusted in Christ? Would your family know that? Would your spouse, would your kids know that you believe truly? According to the Bible, believed in Christ as Savior. That's the question before you. And it always will be until you believe and have that assurance of salvation. So let's now pray that God would do his work in our hearts from this text this morning. Oh Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts. If we're believers here, Lord, help us to just love you all the more. We realize where we've been, how self-righteous we often were, how moral we thought we were, and then yet you broke into our life. We were not a people looking for you. You found us, you saved us. And I pray for those who haven't come to true saving faith. Maybe the moral person who's here today or, or listening to this message. They think they've done good. They think they've done right. They're well loved by others. Lord, I pray that you would convict them. Help them to believe fully in Christ. If they're not certain, if they're not sure, Lord, point them to, to the scripture, to the passages of the Bible that would bring them to full assurance because they truly are saved. Point them to this church, the pastors here, the, the members here to help them. We pray, Lord, that as the word of Christ goes out, we would not be a disobedient and obstinate people, but a believing, faithful people. We pray that this would be done for your glory and not to pat ourselves on the back, but simply to glorify your holy name. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.